Hey, everybody, and welcome into the New England Ski Journal's Base Camp Podcast. I'm Eric Wilber. I'm joined by Mike Specian, as always. To my left, Mike, how are you? Eric, fantastic. Have you been skiing yet? In my mind. <laughs> Does that count? Well, I've been skiing in my mind since June, so I mean, I guess. But... You, you know what? At least once or twice a week, I go to sleep thinking about a turn. Mm-hmm. Do you so, really? so, yeah, I mean, it it just calms my myself right down. Everything else leaves my mind as I start to think about that perfect turn. Well, I do it, but I, I don't do it. I, I know what you're talking about, and I've done it in the past. Like, I was just telling my students this morning about how your brain works and how you plan things and how, like, when I'm writing something – I'm always planning in my mind what I'm going to do and what's going to come out onto the paper, right? Or how it's going to happen. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, but I always have this preparation running in my mind. And I don't go to bed dreaming of skiing, but you better believe it. When I'm driving to the mountain or if I'm sitting on a chairlift or if I'm going skiing the next day, those thoughts go through my mind. Okay, I'm going to be hitting Wildcat. I'm going to hit this trail. I'm going to hit the trees over here. I hope there's snow on here. I hope we have good bumps here. And I'm playing through all that. So I understand what you're, what you're talking about. You're talking about it just in this dreamlike sense. I'm talking about it in like focus and I'm going to go Tuesday and this is what I'm going to do. That's when I start getting these dreams. Well, anybody that really knows me knows that my mind runs 100 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. I've got so many balls in the air in my mind at every moment. So when I lay down and I think about that perfect windsurfer, windsurfing day or that perfect surfing day, or at this time of year, it's 100% turns to skiing. It just relaxes me. It's second nature. We spoke to John Egan recently Mm. about what does it feel to turn? Yep. Okay. What was his statement? It's about the mental part of it. And so I go to sleep that way. But then when I get on the hill, everything is subconscious. Nothing. It's it's my meditation of sorts at night. I'm glad you put it that way because when I talk to other people about meditation, one thing I always will say is that music puts me in an enormous meditation. When I'm running on the treadmill, it is like a it's like a meditation, right? Cause you get this music going and you're running to the beat and you're watching highlights on TV or something. And your mind is elsewhere and not paying attention that you're running at six miles an hour here and trying to beat your record pace. That's a meditation. And so the skiing meditation is somewhat of the same thing, right? Like where does your mind take you on the hill? So it, it's getting exciting. I we're, we're taping this of course, and this is, this is the middle of November. I'm actually, I think going to be skiing tomorrow. Well, yes, Stowe is, well, as of when we take this episode, Stowe was scheduled to open for the season tomorrow. My wife and I will be uh, up there for the weekend and I'm going to try and get a few runs in at Stowe. So, okay, I'm, I'm, going, fingers I'm going back to last year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Eric Wilbur is thinking about going skiing the first day of Stowe yep. on a white ribbon of death <laughs> That's right. that he's That's spoken right. so highly <laughs> against. Well, listen, okay. It's either that. Or I could stare there from the hotel and look at the slope and say, man, I wish I brought my skis for a run or two just to say I went. Well, uh, my, my wife is going to go for a nice spa day, and I'm going to take a couple hours and, and do the White Ribbon of Death. Absolutely. Why not? At Stowe, of all places, which just won't be crowded at all. So is it the best idea in the world? Is it the, the, the most opportune time to go skiing? No. Is it going against all my sort of pain in the butt? Theories about the white ribbon of death, yes, but it's skiing, so I'm going to go. So I want to ask you, what are you going to be on for ski then? <laughs> okay. I, uh, first first that's question. Gonna, that's going to depend. Hopefully it's a carving ski. Hopefully it's narrow under waist and not something wide because yes. that's what it demands. Yes. But did did, did uh, you Maybe I'll see? dig out the, the, uh, the, vocal, the vocals for the weekend and put the parlors away. So – so that's where I was going, but I wasn't going there. Um, so did you see on October 29th the pitchers coming out of A Basin? Day yes. number day number one. Yep. Day number one. Well, let's have this discussion. Were they first to open or was Ski Ward? Because I know ski, this is ski, sort of No, a, no, no. Ski Ward was first to open. There's mm, it you can't 
Where was the first lift service for the year? And I don't care if it's a magic carpet or whatever. They still get first opened. Vertical, everything else doesn't matter. They won, but it doesn't mean it's... Yeah. They won. Here's where I stand on this. I think what Ski Ward did is incredibly impressive. I think it's even more impressive than what they did over the summer when they piled up that 10 feet of snow to prove that their new snowmaking system works. What is it, 75 degrees, 77 degrees, whatever yep. it is. It's it's remarkable system they've got going there. I don't know if we can count that as first to open, though, because we're talking such a small area, and we're talking it's it was part of like a fall festival that so, had a petting so, zoo. So it's only, <laughs> it wasn't only, like this it's was. Only, it's only Whistler, Ski Bradford, no, Ski Neshoba. That's not it that's, at all. That's pretty pretentious. That's not it at all. But what I am saying is that running a magic carpet and about 100 feet of snow isn't opening for the season. And, that's, and guess that's, what? That's showing off that you've okay. got some cool tool you can use, and that's awesome. And I think it's fantastic for Ski Ward and their lesson programs that they can get this going as early as possible. I mean, November 1 is when they want to start. Why not start October 1? Let's, but them being the first to open in America, I mean, this used to be a race that was – it's never really been serious. Wachusett won once. Wachusett won once, and Wachusett – I, but they didn't I think they've won more than once because well, of their snowmaking system is well, so impressive. Well, the bottom Did they the only have line? one small white ribbon though? But guess what? On that day. So, what did Ski Ward do? They got open with lift service. They yeah, limited well, I mean, they limited how many people could be on the hill. What did A Basin do? They got open with lift service and didn't limit so there was 800,000 800, I'm exaggerating mm-hmm. a little bit. Of your closest friends trying to ski down nothing. So if you saw the pictures of A Basin, and I applaud A Basin for getting open, and but the bottom line is Ski Ward was number one, doesn't make it. I'm not about who's first or who's last. I'm about the skiing of the moment. And but I just think it's funny that you're going. You you're actually thinking about skiing on the white ribbon of death that you speak so highly against. I know, I know, but you know what? It's it's to the point where you got to go experience that thing, right? You got to experience the people there that are there on day one. Like, why are you here? And I'm there for the same reason, right? Because I'm going to go kill a few hours, and I happen to be on the slopes. But so, is that is that a destination? Am I going to drive three and a half hours to go to Stowe for that opening day? No. We're just we're staying in town. We were thinking about maybe going over to Sugarbush because they're supposed to be opening on Saturday too. But I found out the stove will be open, and they're right there since we're going to be staying on Mount Road at Top Notch. We will be going to Stowe. Um, there, there you, there you go. I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait a little bit just so you know because <laughs> perfect. That's what's going to happen. Freaky Friday. Exactly. Yeah. So, but the cool thing right now is that we have snow. It is snowing. Mount Washington has snow. Yep. Maine has gotten snow. The mountains have had dustings everywhere, and the World Cup has started. Yep, St- it was kind of weird that we that we we got the first races in the in the World Cup on Saturday when it was about eighty five degrees in New England. But yes, skiing is the World Cup is on. U.S. ski team is is started the season, and next weekend is Killington. So that came up pretty quickly. It sure has, Michaela sixth. For the first race of the year, mm-hmm. but the competition is huge, and it's it's going to be a fun ride. Unfortunately, the men's event was canceled for the first race of the year, but welcome to weather. Weather weather is changing, folks. We have it's so unpredictable right now. What's going to happen? We saw it this summer with all the rain mm-hmm. here in New England. Last summer we had no rain. We have some real real issues. With sustaining skiing and how we're going to sustain it. Which is where I think Ski Ward comes into play because, like we said, I guess they said they've got a massive waiting list for their lesson program, which if you can, the more you can fit in there, the better and the better health for skiing. So absolutely. So Killington is coming up in our sights. Big, exciting time. Michaela Schifrin's first time there as the queen of the World Cup. So that's going to be exciting to to see whether or not she can continue her success there. As for today, who do we have on the on the on the show today, Mike? Well, 
As you can tell, we have talked many, many times about winter and our changing winters. I've been around these neck of the woods for a long time, and our seasons have shrunk. I mean, we are starting later and later. And not a ski ward, then. Not a ski ward. There we go. But there is an organization called Protect Our Winners, which started by Jeremy Jones, that is making a difference. And we're going to be talking about it. Everybody's seen the POW stickers on cars, on laptops, all over the place. This is about what we can do as a group to protect it and how one person here in New England's helping to change it. Yeah, and I think that we're going to have a POW Athlete Alliance member, Tori Brooks, on with us. And I'm very excited that she's coming on because a couple weeks ago when I was planning my well, the schedule for the New England Ski Journal all year, I came across this this short film called 300 Miles Melting about traversing the entire Catamount Trail in a winter that is less than ideal. And I earmarked that. I said, I, w- I would like to do something on this for the magazine. Well, lo and behold, here's Tori Lee Brooks, who actually was behind that film. So getting to talk to her about that and, and the reception of that is going to be pretty exciting. So very cool segment coming up with Tori Lee Brooks, POW Athlete Alliance member. We'll come up with that right after this. All right, welcome back to the show. Joining us on the Zoom hotline from Protect Our Winters is POW Athlete Alliance member Tori Brooks, who is going to tell us a little bit about POW and a a special project she worked on this year that I'm very excited to discuss with her. So, Tori, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, Tori, we're totally excited to have you here. Protect Our Winners is such an important foundation right now, or movement, I should say. Can you tell us what what it's about and what the mission is of Protect Our Winners? Yeah, definitely. So Protect Our Winners, and I'm a Protect Our Winners athlete. I'm on the Alliance there, and it's essentially a nonprofit that came together to push climate advocacy and climate action and based out of this kind of outdoor state, all of us who get outside and see nature and want to protect it and realize that we need to we need to do a little bit more outside of our time outside to be able to really reduce the impact we're having on the climate. And it started with Jeremy Jones, who's a snowboarder, hence hence the protect our winters part, but it's really expanded past that to kind of the outdoor state on the whole. And there's runners and climbers and anglers and rock climbers. And it's all these different outdoor state, outdoorsy folk who care a whole lot and are trying to make a difference. Occasionally going to DC rather than to the crag or to a mountain location. And it's really focused on trying to bring everyone together to to make a, a good impact on climate change for the better. What is, how does the organization affect change? Is it through lobbying? Is it through action? What are are your main goals? All of it. I think it's the realization that individually, it's really hard to move the needle on these things. And you, you start feeling real guilty if you look at this as just an individual problem, especially when we're in this world where a lot of us are traveling to do a lot of these things. Um, but the real change needs to come from a larger systematic. So yeah, it's, it is sometimes lobbying and talking to our Congress people and making sure that the voices of the people who love the outdoors are being heard in those rooms is is really important. And that showing that there's a lot of people behind who, on this whole movement that really want to see differences made on a larger level, as well as some community action too. Like when stuff is happening at home, it's helping with the awareness of that and and how you can make a positive impact and be a climate voice kind of in your community and just among your friends when you're out too. So it's it's kind of on all levels from small community-based all the way to lobbying for bigger climate action in D.C. That D.C., huh? that's, that's, that's a tough one these days, especially, especially since some people think this climate issue isn't real, but that's another story for another day. You're a New England girl. I am. I was born and raised in New Hampshire and I made my way back and I'm still living in the Grant State and enjoy climbing and skiing and running all over New England. Where did you grow up in New Hampshire? 
I was raised in the Lakes region, so Wolfboro, New Hampshire on Lake Wetabasaki, which is a beautiful place. I feel really lucky to have had parents who decided to raise us in vacation land. And so spent a lot of time on the water and skiing and in a really, really fun place to grow up. That's awesome. I wanted to go over your resume of some of your accomplishments here for the audience. Your full-time career outside of skiing as a sustainability engineer working on climate impact mitigation and sustainable infrastructure. You have descended some of the steepest, most technical lines in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, many long multi-sport and human-powered adventures, including raising money for good causes, 12-plus years as a competitive alpine ski racer, 8-plus years as a race coach and program director. So you obviously have the athletic backing there to, for your resume. How did you hook up with Pow? Is it a matter of like, did you seek them and say, hey, I have a mission the same as you, or did they chase you down? I think it was parallel paths in a lot of ways. I obviously from the athletic side was connected with the outdoor state, but then through school and where I ended up taking my career in sustainability, that was very related to all the time I was spending outside and how much I wanted to protect those places. And so I was kind of going through that and trying to find where this balance was and how to bring these two things and passions I love so much together. And I had a friend who reached out, was essentially like, hey, I think that you would fit right in with the Protect Our Winners crew is really trying to do something similar. And so that was originally how I got connected and through actually a local chapter. And then now I'm working with them as an athlete on a bit of a larger scale. And it's been really cool on the Athlete Alliance. And they've been really supportive of my projects that help kind of speak to what we have to lose and how we can make an impact. Well, you speak of your projects, that leads right into my next question, because 300 Miles Melting is your new project. It's a new film that follows the Catamount Trail amidst a turbulent winter. And it, it's really something to watch. And it, it's got some, some notable faces in it. Vermonters will recognize Bill McKibben, Dr. Liz Burakowski, I believe, from the University of New Hampshire, Matt Williams of the Catamount Trail Association. So recognizable names there. I want to I want to ask from you, what was the genesis of this idea? How did you land on the Catamount Trail? And what was sort of the, what was your main goal in deciding to do this film? Yeah, I think the funniest thing to know about this whole thing is it's a backcountry Nordic trail. And I think grew up as a, a pretty big alpine skier. Didn't play too much on the skinny skis growing up. And, but as the last couple of years, I've been playing a little bit more back in Nordic. I'm a big believer that skiing is skiing and that's fun. So I started doing backcountry Nordic and found out that I, there was this amazing trail that ran the entire length of Vermont. And it's only three, three and a half hours from where I grew up in a lot of places. And it was, it just shocked me that it existed and I had no idea. And so pretty quickly, the the wheels start turning of, oh, it would be really cool to do it. And then, oh, it would be really cool to do it all in one season and then maybe even in one push. And a big part of that, too, there was part of my brain that was like, oh, maybe I'll wait. I'll, I'll do a couple more like Nordic backcountry long distance things and then I'll do it. But a lot of the Camo Trail is at lower elevation. And with how the winters have been going of late, it felt risky to keep trying to push this big objective that I wanted to do out. So there was part of me that was felt like there was a story to tell there. And that's why we made a film about it, but also that wanted to kind of do that and, and show that you don't have to be perfect to go out and do these things. And you're never really going to be fully ready anyways. So it was, it was, a, it was a bit of a leap of faith for me. <laughs> so how long did it take for you to complete the trail? So I spent 18 days on skis, skiing the catamaran. And in the film, you'll kind of see how that progresses a little bit. But it was a combination of me being pretty self-supported, have everything I need, especially because there are areas that are really backcountry. And then there were times where I was going out and doing kind of like big sections, light and fast. But it sure. was 18 days all in total. That's That's amazing. You talk about the lower elevations. We're seeing it in Europe right now, areas closing because they they can't sustain it. It's it's pretty scary and we're seeing it in Connecticut and so on, where ski areas are, are just having a huge issue. What is you're doing this as an athlete, but it's not your full time job. So what else do you do and how does that par parlay into what your vision is? 
Yeah, I am an athlete, but also a real secret nerd on the side. So I was an engineer for the longest time and I worked in green buildings, especially. And now I focus in climate mitigation through infrastructure. So how we build better and less impactful, essentially. And it it directly ties because every time I go out, I'm reminded why I have passion for my job. And I'm really lucky in that I get to go to my job and feel like I'm impacting something on a larger scale. I'm not just typing away and sticking at a screen, which it still is. That was the end of the day. But it's a balance. And I, I honestly think that for me, it's what motivates me a lot of times to want to take a couple of weeks off and go go ski alone in the woods for a while. But, you know, it's like anything. It's hard to fit it all in, but we're all doing that in some capacity. Last year was a strange season for snow. We got late season was good. And so when I was crafting these questions to you, I said, hey, what was it like to do this trail before the snow came in March? And you said, well, actually, I did this in March. So I think that. So I guess what I'm asking is, even though it was a good snow month, how did you fare? Yeah, it was, we joke, it was not a good year to do the Catamount Trail, but a really good year to make the climate change felt about the Catamount Trail. So it was, it was really rough. We were really worried. As you said, in the start of the winter, it was really dry and we had almost nothing. The resorts were struggling a ton, even with snowmaking to have enough on the ground, let alone the backcountry. And so we were really worried, me and my my project team, that we weren't even going to be able to launch to start, that the the whole trail wasn't even necessarily going to be covered enough. So we actually ended up having to push my launch date back a little bit. And that put us a little bit going into March for most of this project. And then once March hit, when I was out there, we had some pretty extreme storms. We had a pretty bad nor'easter. And it was constant swings. We would get a big storm and then it would get really warm and it would melt out. And it was just this like roller coaster back and forth, which says a lot about what our climate's doing as well. And so it was it was hard. And we had to make some serious adjustments and some and some hard calls just off of safety and the reality of what we were dealt. But that's kind of part of the trail. And if you, if when you sign up for these types of things, or you're at the mercy of whatever kind of comes to you. And in some ways that it, it ended up working out and I ended up being able to ski 95 to 98% of it. There was a little, there's, there's a little walk-in in there at the end, but I got, I got lucky enough and I might, I, we think that with the year that we were given, it was, it was pretty surprising that we were able to get it all done. But I think, I think the fact that you said you had to push it back, was there almost like this thinking, right? Because obviously this is such a split topic that people are going to deny it and, and that's whatever there. But that this was something that if you did this in December, that you were going to have a group of people saying, well, of course it's going to look like that in December because you're not waiting for this... Right. So do you have to kind of do that and balance out how things are going to be recepted on both sides? Or is there sort of just your messages you're missing and that's all you can handle? I mean, honestly, there wasn't a lot of thought on how the message had become across because it was just the reality of what we were dealt. I mean, there just wasn't snow on the ground. So at some point, it doesn't doesn't really matter what your opinion is, isn't it? Right. I I mean, it doesn't matter your opinion, but you know the world, so that's yeah, yeah, where that question big, comes from. It's a big um, topic in this, right? And and people's assumption of maybe where you land or what your other views are. But everything that I've experienced is that for the people who are out there and like the the general outdoor state, they're they're seeing changes in whatever capacity that they are in too, right? Our anglers and our hunters are often some of the first people to notice the, the small changes, and so you know, the more in tuned you are with everything out out there, the more kind of obvious it becomes. And I hope that we get to a point where this isn't forever a concern every year and less and less likely that we're going to be able to have these places, but it is where we are right now. It It is. It's kind of funny when you say that. Carolina wrens, the bird, they have become very huge in New England where they never were. And I just sit out on my back deck and listen to them going, this isn't normal. There were an anomaly of them 
but now it is the norm, which is a little, little wild. What were your emotions as you made this trek and knowing that there might not be snow over the next knoll? Yeah, um, I definitely was a practice in being present, both in the sense of having to be present because you're alone out there for so long. You don't really have a choice. There's not much else to think about, but also just not letting yourself get too far ahead. You can't worry about tomorrow. You have to worry about whatever's in front of you. But yeah, it's it's hard, uh, especially these days. So you can check a radar and see what you're in for at least a little bit. And we're trying to plan things like the film crew is trying to come find me in spots. It's definitely, it was tricky and there were definitely really hard moments. I think the hardest moments were when when you have to make those hard decisions, whether it be safety because of conditions or just the reality of pace and having the confidence to make those decisions is the hardest. But then once you make them, being able to just have that moment of resolve and some of the best moments came from the hardest decisions. And looking back, I wouldn't I wouldn't change how things went for me and how the project went because I think it, it not only did it tell the story in a really authentic real way but for me it felt like that when you go out for these adventures you're looking for adventure and that doesn't mean it's ever perfect so it's part of what adventures are that you've gotta you've gotta adjust but i i can only imagine the emotions of the purpose why you were out there and seeing the changes that were happening because as as a ski racer in new england yeah, we, we had ice, we had this, we had that. But uh, last year, with the amount of rain that we saw roll up the Ohio River Valley right into New England week after week, that was unprecedented to me. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more visceral when you're out in the backcountry. I think growing up as a racer, even when it was a bad season with snowmaking and the fact that you really only need that like lane or that trail to, to do what you need to do, you're a bit padded from the reality of how bad it can really be and how impactful it can be. I did grow up in smaller or local resorts and they always really feel the impact because they don't have that capacity on the snowmaking side. So it felt similar to that growing up and just watching people struggle and even when I was out there skiing, like watching people getting stuck in mud and then the next day it gets stuck in snow. And it was just like, God, it's not only making my life hard, but I chose to be out here and I have a nice warm home and I chose to be out here sleeping at that. But it's making everyone's life more difficult. Do you ever get overwhelmed by the by the responsibility of of being at the forefront of changing for climate? And 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 what I mean by that question is like we we recently had another mass shooting and everyone gets up in arms for three or four days and then we forget about it until the next time and then we'll get up in arms for three or four more days. And I think we do the same with climate change, right? It gets hot for three or four days. And everyone's like, oh my God, the climate's changing. And the realities are never really discussed. Um, and I wonder if that's, you know, is it frustrating for you or is it just a hurdle that you see that is like the big hurdle in front of you that needs to be overcome in order to enact this change? Yeah, it it can definitely be frustrating. And especially when it's tied to not only my career, but also my passions and my sport. It's, It's a part of everything I do. I think for me, just kind of, it's the, like, I think, I forget what the book this came from, but the 1% rule, just do 1% better every day and you're going to get a heck of a lot further than if you're trying to do big spurts occasionally, right? And I, I approach these projects like that. You just, every every morning, you try to just put in a little bit more and eventually you'll get there. And I, I approach my career and how I view climate action the same way as we're not going to solve everything tomorrow. And, but if we just keep chipping away at reducing our impact and talking about it openly and being real about the impact that we do have on the planet over time, we're going to get, we're going to get somewhere. We're going to get pretty far. And it's a little bit less overwhelming if you think about it that way than if you think about it, like, oh my gosh, we need to solve this whole thing 10 years ago. Right. Which that can be true and we can still be chipping away. It is true, but I think the reality is we have to accept the fact that we didn't do it 10 years ago and start doing it now. 
Right. And then going at it in a bunch of different ways. Right. And this is why, like, I do it in my career. And then I also do it through my sport and through storytelling, because the more ways everyone can just find what, what the way it makes sense for them to be a climate advocate or the way it sends them to make any type of climate impact or any impact, that's going to be the most effective. Yeah. I, I've always said it starts with the individual. And if you look at this, whether it's gun rights or anything else, it it really starts with advocacy on the individual part before you can take it to the next level. And I believe that's totally true in climate. We have a choice whether we want to make three trips in a vehicle or make one trip and do it all at once. And we just preach that wholeheartedly. What what do you see as the short and long-term impacts along the catamount right now? Yeah, the short-term impacts are pretty obvious with all the flooding that Vermont saw last season. And it, the catamount trail is just one part of that. But that was economic and people's lives that were at risk. And so that was really obvious. And so that does things like take out bridges that people have gone in and done maintenance. So they have a, the catamount trail this year has a heck of a lot to do to just repair some of the damages from that flooding, um, which was related to wet winters and more melting and not coming down as snow. And then in the long term, yeah, it's just how that snowpack is going to be there, especially in those low elevation spots. Places where the snowpack would have sat and kind of been insulated in the past is now maybe muddier and and not as consistent. So it's just going to be harder and harder for somebody who might want to try to do it all in one push to be able to get a weather window where that would really work out where when the trail was originally cut in the 70s and 80s that you you had a lot more of the season or you could maybe sure. go after this thing. <laughs> what can the listener do to become involved and, and make a difference? What are whether either small steps they can make in, in doing climate change on their own or whether it's becoming involved with the POW itself? What What can someone just listening to this right now do in the immediate future? Yeah, I think from an individual standpoint, one of the best things is just being open to the conversation and being upfront and meeting yourself and meeting whoever you're having that conversation with, whether it's your family or somebody with a different perspective, wherever they are and finding like we've, we've all had these climate moments and we all feel that urgency somewhere. We just might feel it and say it and believe it's maybe coming from a different way, but it really is all there um, with everyone who's connected and, and spends time outside. And so just finding those moments to talk about and, and getting that conversation rolling does a heck of a lot. And then taking that a step further with further educating yourself. POW has a really great education tool right now through Crux Academy that's essentially kind of digestible videos that anyone can go on there and start learning about climate solutions and how to advocate and in a, in a really friendly way that's less high horse like academia or super policy based and then join movements where you can have these resources like POW and also like a lot of other local organizations that there already are. How do you calmly stay in a conversation with a climate change denier? Like where does like how do you do that? You've got to be got to be. Yeah, it's practiced, definitely. I mean, you must get it more than anybody else, I'm sure, but... Yeah, I think it's important to remember that everyone's acting out of a place where, in general, they're they're looking out from themselves and their family, and they, and they get different messages on what that means. And I think if you can just keep reminding yourself that, and there are also sometimes times where it might just not be really productive in that moment, and it's okay to just sometimes just step back and be like, you know what, like, let's have that conversation about the weather and just leave it about the weather right now. <laughs> Not like there are times. Right, right, right. Right. Let's walk away. Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> finding those times where maybe there is an open door, right? Maybe somebody is talking about like, oh, like it used to be a lot different and, and being inquisitive and listening to their perspective too. Not just like talking at somebody is really important. Right. I, I think one thing you said there, Going back to maybe it, sometimes you just talk about the weather. There is such a misunderstanding the difference between weather and climate. And 
you look at California, you look at Mammoth last year with what they got for snow. They got more than they wanted. Um, talking, I just spoke to Wayne Wong the other day, and his statement about the amount of snow out there was crazy. But we we are in these fluctuations where um, we go from extreme to extreme, and that's what climate has really, this climate situation has done. And you look at the hurricane that hit Acapulco, that's, that's unheard of. Yeah, it's it's a hard one, right? Because these are more abstract com- concepts than I think we sometimes give credit to. And the weather is what we're experiencing every day, but the, the climate impacts are much more long-term and they're shifting everything. And this is where on the project, why we brought in somebody like Liz Barakowski out of UNH. She's a researcher and this is what she studies. This is her whole career in studying the impacts, the long-term impacts and how our whole climate is shifting. And and we we have this research. And so step one is right listening to the people who like said this and that they like might know, might know a thing or two. And also just realizing that for most people it's what they experience. And I think this is why we really wanted to make a climate film in the Northeast, because there's a lot of other places in this country where you're seeing climate change in a much scarier real way, right? We don't have wildfires in the capacity that out West does. We're not seeing droughts in the capacity. We're not watching our rivers dry up. And so in a lot of ways, it can be hard to really have that conversation about climate change in the Northeast, other than it's getting a little warmer and our winters are getting shorter. Like our winters are our indicator here. And so Having that conversation, though, is still really important. But that was one of the reasons we wanted to bring this kind of into the Northeast, because it's it's a little bit more evident, I think, in other places right now. But it doesn't mean it's not happening. And in fact, the Northeast is one of the fastest warming winters of the entire country. We just don't see it as extreme, even though in reality it, it is. And the, and the data is telling us that. Well, the one th- one thing that I think has really hit me in the face over the last couple of years, um, I grew up in the Northeast and I have never seen as many tornadoes hit New England as we are having now. Just totally unpredictable, which was never the case. That was somewhere else. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing to remember, too, like when we're viewing climate change through our athletics and our desire to be skiing, right? That's just like the tiniest part of it, because this is this is livelihoods. This is people's safety. It is so much bigger than that. And and fortunately, now we're in the part where we have to start talking about that part because it's no longer how many powder days we get. Now it is. Do I have to get tornado insurance? That I live in New Hampshire, right. right? Like exactly. These are big. These are big questions that people are having to grapple with. And there's already a heck of a lot to grapple with in life without having to add new phenomenon that we're not used to dealing with. Right. My goodness. Could you tell where's the best place for the audience to go watch 300 Miles Melting? Yeah, we tried to make it easy. So 300milesmelting.com. Perfect. Uh, you can find the bill on there. You can also, it's on Protect Our Winners YouTube page. So they are, they're hosting it. And you might see it in on the big screen in a couple of festivals around the U.S. too. We're working on that. So hopefully plenty That's... of opportunities for people to see this film. Well, what's what's the next big adventure? What are you doing next to get this message across? Yeah, this season I'm focused on skiing a little bit more steep stuff, given I spent a lot of time walking on skis last season. <laughs> Staying a little close to home for the most part, really enjoying the backyard and where I where I live. and. I'm actually right now, I'm shifted pretty heavily on my career in that side of things. It, it ebbs and flows. And so continuing to just kind of be an advocate in different directions and, and ski. And I think sometimes the best messages are, are the relatable ones. And we don't always need to be going on the biggest adventure to be able to get a message across. Tori, how do you feel about skiing opening day in the White Ribbon of Death? Is it a yay or a no? This was the start before you came on, Tori. So this is... The White Ribbon of Death is something that as a former ski racer, I'm very, very familiar with. And now I'm very happy to say I do not have to ski on the White Ribbon of Death anymore. I don't know if this with age comes patience, but now I, I would rather not be part of the chaos in that first couple 
weeks. I get the excitement. I am also excited, but I will usually wait off and wait until <laughs> there's at least three trails open before I, if, I get too excited. If you only knew the background of that question, See? it's there's a real background. See? Yeah, yeah. But Eric, Thank you, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, Eric's thinking about being opening day at Stowe. Well, so I will. I, I will be opening day at Stowe. You know, there is a, a time and place for every type of skier. I mean, I spend <laughs> most of my time in the backcountry with maybe a couple people, and it's pretty lonely. So it's it's more of a contrast issue for me. I, I can so, tell you, it's, it's almost the entertainment value alone of going up to Stowe and seeing all these people with their epic passes complaining about getting in this white ribbon of death will just be worth the trip alone. Yeah, I, right. Yeah, you keep saying that. So we didn't ask you this question. Where do you race out of? Where do you go to college? Yeah, so I grew up racing out of Waterville Valley, and I ended up going up to high school in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, which was a very fun transition. Had to learn how to ski powder, and then I came back and I went to school at UNH. So full, full on New Hampshire girl from being raised, other than my quick stint out west. So yeah, lots of time in New Hampshire, and now I ski all over the White Mountain, mostly backcountry, but still, still love my time on some of the smaller resorts. And Canon is so, a favorite. So, did you ski at the academy at Waterville? I didn't. I did do a year at Holderness though, so I skied with a very similar crew, but. I was out west for most of my high school. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Tori, thank you very much for joining us. This was a, a fascinating discussion. If you, if anyone listening has not gone and, and watched Three Miles Melting yet, go watch it, 300milesmelting.com. Tori, thank you very much for joining us. And how can people find out more about Protectile Winters? Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. And as far as Protector Winners go, their their media team is pretty strong. So if you go to protectorwinners.com, you'll find all of the things you can. Their social media platforms are really helpful and a good balance of the fun skiing stoke stuff and the real climate action steps that you can take if that's what you're interested in jumping into. So lots of opportunity on there. And what about you? Do you have any social media handles? I do. Best place to find me is Instagram. I'm T Lee Ski, T L E E S K I. Make it easy for people. And that's usually where you can find me most. And if you're not out skiing, I don't run by you, though it won't be on the white ribbon of death. That's good to know. And would love to go out and make some turns with you at Cannon or in the backcountry this year. Nothing better. I'm getting a new knee here in a couple of days. So as soon as I'm ready to go, February 1, I'll be on. Awesome. Yeah. Death for you. Last. Exactly. Excellent. Tori Brooks from Pow Tori Brooks, Pow Athlete Alliance member with us. Uh, we'll be back right after this. Eric, protect our winners, Jeremy Jones. We had his brother Todd on, of course, with TGR. Mm -hmm. But I thought what the biggest thing I got out of this, we think about it as winter only, but Tori just put it perfectly. This isn't just about winter anymore, even though that's where it started. Well, yeah, obviously. I think that, like she said, in New England, where we don't see these changes as obvious as they do elsewhere, but we are seeing them. Like tornadoes are becoming a more common thing to, to happen. Winters are warming. Our, our, our snowstorms are less frequent. In Massachusetts, I think, had, what, an inch or two of snow last year, which is just completely out of the norm. We, we say it every year, right, that weather and climate are different. And that is something that's incredibly hard for, I think, the general public to understand. And I include myself in that, right? Because if it's hot one day, we're reacting to it. Or if it's cold one day, we're reacting to it. When in reality, it's not that one day that is supposed, is supposed to be in your focus, right? It's the whole, the pattern and what's happening in those patterns, to sit here and say that the climate is not changing, at this point, I'm, I'm a journalist and I like to tell both sides of the stories, but there's a reason why, like the New York Times, was New York Times or LA Times, one of those doesn't even publish letters to the editor anymore that, are, that have to do with global warming because all the people writing in and saying it doesn't exist are just causing the issue to be backwards, right? By denying it, they're not helping the situation. 
whatever you think about the weather on a day-to-day basis, it was a wet summer. Does that mean global warming? Partially, yes. It was a very snowless winter last year until March. Is that part of global warming? Partly, yes. You can't take one aspect or one weather or one anything and say it's global warming. It's a whole general multitude of things that makes it, it makes it a huge issue that it's overwhelming at how big it is to try and solve. This is not something that will be solved in our lifetime. I'd love to say it is, but it's not going to be. Will it be my children's lifetime? I don't know. I just well, don't know. Well, we've got to have hope that it is. But well, I, there's I, always I, hope. I, I think the biggest thing here is that we have become so polarized. We have become so isolated in our own little worlds. It was the hottest. It has been the hottest year on record internationally. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not, not Milton, Massachusetts, where we're at or New Hampshire or Vermont globally. It has been the hottest year on record. We had the hottest three months on record. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is climate is affected in the atmosphere as a whole and with jet streams. The jet streams have changed. We don't get the thermal winds that we used to get for me for windsurfing on Cape Cod. It doesn't happen. We have seen pronounced changes and some of it is natural. Anybody that says, hey, the world changes, yeah, it is natural. But anybody that says that my actions don't have an impact on what happens with the rest of the world is blind, to say the least. Because my actions, personally, every time I hop in the car, I think, do I need to? But all we can do, thank God for Tory, thank God for Protect Our Winners, to be advocates, have advocacy towards making a change. Right. And I, and I think this is global warming is all of our problems, but as skiers and riders, particularly it's, it's in our immediate sites because it's affecting the sport that, um, that we, we, we love and that drives us. And so the, the, the more global warming uh, affects us, the more those things are thrown into, into a tizzy. I mean, the fact that Tahoe didn't close or that that Mammoth didn't close until August is not normal. That is also a factor of global warming. Um, you know, it, it it's not just the, 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 the dry, the dried out rivers and, and the snowless winters. It's, you know, things like that. Just well, well, things that aren't supposed to happen that are happening. You, you know, the funny part is we talk about Mammoth. We talk about New England with no snow until third week of February last year, because it was bad folks until then, then it was out of, out of this world. Good. But we, we never look, we don't look at the whole. If everybody forgot that we had heavy smoke over the whole new England area and the Adirondacks this summer, guess what? That was unfathomable forest fires up in Canada that have never happened before. So I I think with all of it, I want the powder at Cannon. I want steep and deep at Sugarbush, but I also want it sustainable for all of us for the future. Right. I mean, here's the reality of the situation, right? That, that is the absolute reality. I had somewhere where to go and I completely lost what it was. Okay. So I just want to I want to quickly close with what Tory was saying about New England not, you know, recognizing it maybe as much as other places where there there are wildfires and whatnot. I think what you're saying is correct. There are patterns that we should take note of, and it isn't a weather thing. But there's also this that as New Englanders, we are stuck in our ways. We believe what we believe, and we've got that Puritan sense about us. Yeah, we're hard. Yeah, we're tough. Yeah, we're rough because that's the way that the weather has kind of brought us up at, right? We're cranky. And so when something like this comes up, I wonder if New Englanders, and this is kind of painting everyone in just one picture, but I wonder if we have, if are we too stubborn to care? Are we too stubborn to care about the good of our own planet because 
we're not living in the midst of it. And are, and is it difficult for New Englanders to recognize the the way the rest of the world is warming up that we can't really relate to it? I think with everything going on in the world today, people have gone to information overload and basically just went into themselves. And I think that's so much a part of what is going on. Look at look at COVID, look at global warming, look at we we talked about the the terrible situation in Lewiston, Maine. Mm-hmm. We're not willing to fight the hard fight and we put it in our rearview mirrors and move on way too often. Right now, folks, we've got Protect Our Winners is doing something amazing. And all of us need to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Yeah. And I think, look, you go to protectourwinters.com. There's a whole host of things you can do there from connecting with the network of athletes and and representatives to seeing some of the work to attending events. You can even buy some, some merch, a POW shirt, hat, buy a sticker to slap on your, your, your Yeti and just prove that you're part of POW or that you support them. And having that on your, on your coffee mug may have someone look at that sticker and say, I wonder what that's about in spreading that message. If you get out to one or two people just from having that signage out there, who knows? I mean, maybe that's a difference in something. Yes. Support this organization any way possible. They do have a store, I know. And everything we can do collectively can make a difference. And I want to thank Tori again. Her first off, the film was awesome. And everything she is doing out there and the athletes of POW are making a difference from that standpoint. It's good. And, and, and I think that POW should get more recognition because of this look this thing that we're all dealing with, that everyone on earth is dealing with, whether you want to or not, this is happening. So the quicker we pay attention collectively, the better. I know I I say that with a... One thing I'm really happy, Eric, at least we live in New England, we ski in New England, we we have more like-minded people in New England. It would be much tougher in Mississippi or Louisiana and nothing against those great states, but the views are different mm-hmm. and in, in your weather and your, your, your climate is just, I don't know. I, I've, I've talked enough climate that I'm kind of talking in circles at this point. Mike, thank you very much. Eric, thank you. Uh, uh, it was, it was a great chat and please everybody. We all need to do our part on this one. Yeah. Thanks to Tori Brooks for, for joining us. Go watch our film 300 miles melting. It is a great kind of look at the Catamount trail in, you know, I guess less than ideal situation, but it is a, it's a good watch and important watch and it's sobering. So that's kind of what this should be sobering reality. This is the situation. So let's protect our winters. Mike, thank you very much. Thanks Eric. And until next time, until next time, I'm Eric Wilbur. You will see me on the slopes at Stowe at the white ribbon of death uh, this weekend. That is the show for you. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye. New England Ski Journal's Base Camp is a Siemens Media podcast. Siemens Media, inspiring, informative, insightful.